0: Speaking. A monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 49, February 2022. You are what you speak. A conversation with Lane Green. Hello again, Paul Meyer here. It's not too late to take one of my new Zoom masterclasses. I have a few openings left. The Art of Voiceover begins in just a few days' time on February 5th. Secrets of Great Shakespeare Performances starts February 6th, while three other courses begin in March. Each class consists of four weekly Zoom sessions, 90 minutes each. A complimentary copy of my Accents and Dialects for Stage and Screen, the Deluxe Streaming Edition, is included. For all the details, look for Zoom Masterclasses with Paul under the Coaching tab at paulmeyer.com. I hope to have the pleasure of your company. Now, guess that accent. Last time I played this clip and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. I remember one time when my mom gave me money to buy
1: a piece of cheese. And I went to the store and um, the one man, usually one man goes
0: and go there and leave the bread for, to sell the people. So I saw the bread and it was, it was, it looks really good. So
1: I was thinking I'm going to buy the bread instead of the cheese.
0: If you guessed Mexico, well done. If you narrowed it down to Jalisco, you are amazing. It was Ideas Jalisco 3. Another sample contributed by our prolific senior editor, David Neville. Professor Neville and his students at California State University Fullerton have collected about 200 of Idea's nearly 1,700 recordings. Thanks again, David. The subject, Jalisco 3, was born and raised in the small village of Las Paredes, moved to Los Angeles at age 23, and was 47 years old when she was recorded in 2012. Go to dialectsarchive.com, then the Dialects and Accents tab on the menu bar, then the North America page, then the Mexico page, then the Jalisco page to listen to the whole sample. Now, here's this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend his formative years? You know, you got the sun, you got the... We went camping, cycling, uh, bathing in waterfalls, uh, snorkeling as well with the very colorful fish. So, yeah, Brazil is amazing. Um, I got to learn the language as well over there a little bit. Get the answer next time. My guest today is Lane Green, language columnist and Spain correspondent for the International Weekly newspaper, The Economist. He speaks nine languages, is the author of Talk on the Wild Side, and You Are What You Speak. He lives in Madrid, Spain, where I caught up with him today. This morning, while I was getting ready to have our conversation, Lane, my mind was going back to so many different things that were prompted by your wonderful books. Here's a provocative question. You're clearly a linguophile. You speak nine languages. You grew up in the American South. You've lived in New York City, in London, and, and now in Madrid. Uh, you're clearly a linguophile. Um, has it also made you a xenophile? Yes, I think it did, actually. And
1: the way that started really was with the language first where I grew up was a very not diverse uh, suburb of Atlanta in the eighties and early nineties. And um, the way this whole life began for me a living and moving abroad, it started with languages and with mm-hmm. Spanish. And particularly in particularly in high school, I fell in love with the subject. And as a result of falling in love with Spanish, I started to want to learn more about the people who spoke it. And so that started a boulder kind of rolling downhill and it's
0: just kind of yeah, kept going yeah. that way. Yeah. Do, do you think you were constitutionally a xenophile to, to begin with and the linguophile, linguophilia, came next?
1: You know, I think it was the other way around only because I just didn't even have that much exposure to the world outside of,
0: right.
1: you know, kind of one corner of the United States. The language kind of it, it made me want to find out, Oh, who are all these people that speak all these languages yeah. rather than, Oh, well, I grew up in my, my mom liked a bit of, thai food and my dad would take us to the greek festival N- nothing like that no it was pretty it was pretty uh, white bread upbringing to be honest uh-huh. Uh-huh.
0: It, it also occurred to me as i was pondering our conversation i'm a big fan of jared diamond and uh his history of papua new guinea and the relatively recent trust that the many many different language speakers in new guinea have come to have of each other is is so very rare within within living memory almost you know it was the up until uh, quite recently it was the prudent thing for if you encountered a stranger speaking a different language to kill that stranger and that really grabbed me as an as an idea and it, it occurred to me that most of human history has been we're born and lived and died in the same village so this this thing of you and I being expats and having lived all over the globe and understanding that our language and our dialects are, are just one among many equals is, is a relatively new thing. It, with it, now, I mean, this sounds very pessimistic, but is xenophobia the, the natural course of human history when it comes to languages?
1: I think so. I mean, if we look back at the history of it in, in literature and in myth-making, you see stories about language differentiating people all the way back to the, the Hebrew Old Testament, where the famous story of the Shibboleth, the Gileadites and the Ephraimites, uh, you know, one, one tribe recognizes the other by their inability to pronounce the word shibboleth it's apparently the sh sound at the beginning that the other dudes can't do and they killed them at the fords of the jordan and they i think it says they killed ten thousand of them and a lot of languages the names of languages mean something like you know us-ish or peopleish. in other words people think that just ordinary people or default people speak like we do and everybody else is somehow disordered or different so yeah unfortunately you see Elements of this in in going far, far back, and you see it all around the world. I think it's very natural
0: Mm -hmm. to consider us as people who talk like we do. Yeah. I mean, even in my lifetime as a voiceover artist, uh, an American voiceover director might say about my English accent, Can you lose the accent? (laughs)
1: Can can you acquire another accent? Yeah.
0: But the British director, perhaps, you know, Britain's history of world domination. Makes them more understanding, but the, you know the British director would say, "Can you do an such and such act? Can you do an American accent? Can you do anything? But so many times the the, the American director has said, uh, "You know, can you lose the accent?" As if peel away the the English accent or the Southern accent and, or the French accent, and you know there's good old American English underneath. Yeah, but if you point it out to people,
1: you know, I've never heard anybody actually really resist the argument that everybody has an accent. Once you point it out to even the most, you know, the most committed speaker of a general American or a a sort of. What what they would consider a neutral southeastern RP type British accent. If you point it out, it, mm-hmm. it becomes really obvious that everybody has an accent. That the general American is an accent. That RP is an accent, and so on and so yes. on. Yeah. Um, but it's just it's right there. It's like the water you swim in. So there's so much misunderstanding about language. Just because you know, like the fish, you know, you tell the fish it's you know something about the water, and he says, "What? I'm I'm swimming in water." Um, they just <laughs> don't they just don't realize it. So yeah. um, a lot of linguistics is just pointing that out, pointing what's. out what's out around us all the time. And that's what makes it so much fun.
0: When did you first understand that, that your language, your dialect was one among many equals?
1: That's a good question. And my English comes, you know, it's pretty general American, but I come out of a very Southern family. My dad in particular had a, had a very strong Southern accent and was from Macon, Georgia, in the middle of the state and mm-hmm. had that accent all his life. And the first time I remember that being kind of exotic, I was actually in graduate school. I did a master's in England and I came home with a with a girl I was seeing from New Zealand and I hit the button on my answering machine back when we all had physical answering machines. And there um, comes a the voice of my dad saying, pardon me for this. He said, boy, what the hell are you doing? And uh, this is your dad calling, checking up on him. I'm sure you're out in one of them bars, having a good time. I sort of froze in embarrassment. And I looked at the girl and I said, look, uh, he doesn't normally talk quite that, that Southern. But it turns out he did. I just never heard it. Uh-huh. And so it was that it was being away from home and then having a party from, you know, yet another country and another accent in the room as my dad's accent that I had known for 20 years up to that point or 22 or whatever. Uh, suddenly it just struck me as foreign in a way. That's not really my accent because I, my, I'm lucky to have an accent most people do consider pretty neutral uh, as an American accent, although it's not neutral in the UK. I've had people imitate my accent to my face and stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm fortunate not to have the kind of accent that people comment on quite so much, um, which means you don't get the kind of negative attention that people with a strong regional yeah. well, every accent every yeah. accent is regional but you know you know what i mean the, the, the ones we're talking about that are stigmatized whether it's cockney yeah. or northern or uh, southern american or african-american or boston the kind that get comments yeah
0: why do you think it's still okay to stigmatize southern accents
1: that's a great question and i think there's a couple of things going on first of all accent prejudice is still like the last the last acceptable prejudice among kind of otherwise educated elites who think of themselves as liberal minded and and as 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 tolerant because I think that is because people like that think that accents are chosen and the the decision not to, as you put it, lose your accent is a conscious one. And therefore you must have chosen to embrace whether it's Northern or Cockney or African-American or Southern American. And that in doing so, you must have chosen some other package of cultural baggage to go with it. And Mm -hmm. in America, in the South, The South is associated with political conservatism. It's associated with a history of racism. It's associated with, you know, rural values. It's associated with lots of things that people who are highly educated and politically on the left and live in big cities think it's okay to make fun of still. And so the accent goes with that. And so you have people willing to mock an accent, you know, on CNN, you know, that they would never dream of doing about somebody's race, their, exactly. sex, or their
0: weight or their disability or something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're so, we're so very tolerant and, uh, and, and embracing of multiculturalism and yet it's still okay to beat up on the, on the South. It seems mm-hmm. it's, it, my wife is from Kentucky and it, it pains me when, when, uh, when her accent is marked to her face sometimes, or you, you hear it to denigrate it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, And I think in Britain, it would be Northern accents, right? I've heard of scholars, uh, university professors mm-hmm. having their accents mocked at conferences, and it's just shocking that that academic types would do that.
0: I know. So we are less advanced and progressive than we might flatter ourselves otherwise. Mm. <laughs> Let's talk about language and politics and nationalism. Now we're down that rabbit hole. Your book has a fascinating reminder to us of the, the history of suppression of languages in the United States. There was a real fear of German, of so many immigrant languages. To, to give us a quick potted history of America's uh, flirtation with other languages and its fear of them.
1: The baseline fact that you have to remember is that America's, you know, the Americas, if you imagine, let's just take North America. It's never been dominated by English exclusively. Um, It was multilingual when European colonizers arrived. It was a battleground for English, Spanish and French colonizers primarily and also Dutch and others. And uh, when the American colonies got settled, they were just a little thin strip on the Eastern seaboard. And then as soon as there was a United States, there's been waves of immigration, both just before where there was a big German population, particularly in Pennsylvania. After the independence of the United States, we got subsequent waves and The mid-19th century was one of the first really big ones. And that was when we started getting lots of Irish and lots of Germans in particular. So there was a pre-existing German population. Then you get the post-1848 revolution, German emigration. And so German was the first big outsiderish language in the territory of the independent United States. And Ben Franklin was afraid that German would dominate Pennsylvania. Um, There was a a vote in the state of Virginia to publish laws in German as well as in English, and it failed Mm -hmm. by one vote, but that's the source of the sort of persistent myth that German almost became Mm -hmm. America's official language. That's not true, but they almost did vote to publish laws in German as well as in English. But it was that mid-19th century bulge of Germans that really persisted longer than any language has ever persisted in America. So many Germans came and they lived so concentrated amongst themselves in the cities like Milwaukee and St. Louis, but also in the countryside that they had German speaking children and their children had German speaking children. You had Mm -hmm. third generation Germans for whom German was still very much the family language all the way up to the first world war. So we're talking about a good 60, 70 years. And that ended quickly with the first world war. That was the only case where we really saw a kind of family transmission of first language German that stayed through the generations. Today's Hispanics, contrary to the fear, don't successfully make their children predominantly Spanish speaking. They're lucky if their kids speak Spanish at all. And the more typical pattern of the arriving generation speaks only Spanish and maybe a bit of English. The generation raised in the United States speaks fluent English and maybe some Spanish, but usually not brilliantly. And their children will struggle to speak Spanish at all. And they'll even struggle to talk to their own grandparents. Even though we've had these large concentrations of Spanish in Miami, in Texas, in Southern California, and in some of the cities like New York, we see the same pattern. We see Spanish decaying over that three-generation pattern. And we And
0: we lose a lot by language decay and language death, don't we?
1: We do. I mean, we lose, among other things, we just lose foreign languages. We, you know, uh, America is this uh, global power uh, in commerce and in diplomacy and in uh, intelligence and military affairs and all kinds of other things. We need speakers of foreign languages, whether yeah. Spanish or Chinese or Korean, and yet we see these uh, these valuable skills just getting lost, and we struggle mightily to get them back. We spend billions of dollars teaching foreign languages <laughs> that are lost. It's it's a, yeah. it's a great waste.
0: I was going to make the point that it's absolutely ridiculous to fear that English will somehow be swamped by immigrant languages when English is so clearly a global, biggest global success story on the planet. Does the fear of eradication or swamping of of English persist, do you think?
1: I haven't heard as much about the fear for English as you used to, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, but it's certainly still out there. And you're right to say that it's the least threatened language in the history of the world. I think it's fair to say there's, there's never been a language that has had the kind of global domination that English has. And it's growing every single day. Every single day, people are dying who don't speak English and people are growing up learning English. And the value of speaking English increases every single day because it, it's a language that more and more people speak as it takes over more of the world. It gains momentum. It's not losing momentum. The fears fears for English couldn't be more backwards. Uh, The fear should be that English is bulldozing um,
0: lots and lots and lots of other languages. By being essentially monoglots. Is that the right word, monoglot? Yeah, monoglot. Monoglot is even better than monolingual, since monoglot
1: is both Greek roots and monolingual combines yeah. a Greek root and a Latin root. So, if you want to, if so you want, I, go with monoglot.
0: So, uh, so as we English speakers are tend to be monoglot, unlike yourself who speak nine languages, we're dumber, right? There's plenty of evidence, right? Take us through some of the evidence that speaking two or more languages makes you smarter.
1: First of all, if you speak another language, you speak another language. So right on its face, you've got an ability that other people don't have. It's special to have a language, and it's great. But the evidence in this line of research shows, for example, that people who uh, speak a foreign language fluently, that they're they're lifelong bilinguals, typically get dementia on average about four years later than people who don't speak a second language, which is one of the most striking findings. They find that people tend to perform better on tasks of what's called executive function, which means kind of doing a complicated task while ignoring irrelevant distractors and planning complicated tasks and things like that. Mm -hmm. Now, this is where the research gets a little controversial because some of these studies have failed to replicate, which means another scholars tried to do the same study and hasn't gotten the same result. There's lots of studies that have shown it and lots of failures to replicate. So we're, we're really scratching our heads in research about what's going on here. And now the lines of research are looking at things like, do you have to switch languages frequently or is, a, uh, is it less uh, of a strong effect if you live the first half of your life in one language and then you move to another monoglyph life where you practically never speak your first language again? There are questions like: Does it help to speak two dialects to someone who switches back and forth between, say, African American English and uh, and standard English, or or yeah. Scots in standard English? Yeah. Do they get some of
0: the benefits? Those uh, those um, are um, some of the things we're um, looking at now. Am, am I less likely to be to get dementia because I you know I can switch between accents and dialects? I wonder. Uh, not, it I'm, might be the case. <laughs> Here would be a quick test for you. The
1: proposed mechanism is something like a constant exercise of your ability to control your attention. So for example, if you found yourself always listening to other people you speak with and sort of registering their dialects and maybe trying to adjust your own and and Mm -hmm. suppressing another dialect that you may master, that might provide some of that benefit. One of my favorite studies in this regard was uh, on children, and they found that children were better at what's called theory of mind, which is understanding that other people don't have the same contents in their mind as you have in your own mind. And children are not very good at this, but it gets better as they get older. Bilingual kids do better on some of these tests than monolinguals. And I think the reason is the proposed reason was that they're kind of constantly monitoring other people's brains by how they spoke. So if you're bilingual, you're like, okay, granny speaks Spanish, but doesn't speak English. I can speak both to mommy. Daddy's English is not very good. So better not to speak English to him, but the kids at school really don't like it when I speak Spanish, so better speak English to them. Mm -hmm. And if you're doing that monitoring all the time, then you're constantly thinking about other people's minds. That's the proposed mechanism behind these kids who are doing better in in, in tests of
0: theory of mind. Should we be doing more to promote multiple language speaking in the United States?
1: Absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt. I I should always say, I feel like I have to say this a lot, but it's important. It's hard to acquire language, especially the older you get. It does take resources. And that means that it has to take them from somewhere, both in time and in, uh, in money. Nothing comes for free, but what you get is potentially so valuable, not just these cognitive benefits, which again, I should say, are, are, are still being questioned in the research, but the foreign language ability itself and that perspective taking that it almost forces on you. Speaking another language makes you think about other minds and makes you think about how they work differently than yours. And the number of little insights I've had about the way I think and the way others think that have come through language um, is almost endless. Uh, one I like to, to give as an example, though, is that I'm in a bilingual marriage. I'm married to a Danish woman. And like all uh, couples, we occasionally get to fussing about the housework. And I realized at some point that the English word to clean for me meant all kinds of things, including mostly picking things up off the floor, organizing, putting stuff away so that you could see all the surfaces. For my wife, the word to clean in Danish, uh, uh meant to kind of scrub surfaces with, with liquids, you know, and, and scrubby and, 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 and wipes and such. Mm-hmm. I was tidying in her in, in what the British would call tidying. Whereas for me, uh, cleaning was, 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 uh, you know, my tidying was, was the main thing to be doing. So once I realized there's really two different tasks, one is tidying and the other is cleaning with liquids and, and scrubby pads and stuff. I realized why my wife and I were talking past each other. I said, I am cleaning. She said, no, you're not. I realized we were talking about two different things. So I learned something about cleaning and I learned something about my wife. And we often have, you know, disagreements that revolve around some bit of language language. And once we've worked out what we're talking about, then usually things tend to work themselves out.
0: Is Danish and English spoken equally in the home for your nine-year-old uh, son?
1: Uh, I'd like to say that, but um, unfortunately he is, uh, he is stronger in English. Um, we lived his first year in England, or sorry, in America. And then we lived six years in England, two in Berlin, now uh, most of one in Spain, but he's definitely lived in the English speaking world much more than in Denmark. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're lucky to have the parents-in-law, my parents-in-law, his grandparents, very involved. So he is quite fluent in Danish and he speaks only Danish to his mother. Um, and when it's just three of us, she speaks Danish to him. I speak English and, and he speaks whichever uh, back to us. So uh, it's been a success because a lot of kids in that situation don't get the mother's language or the minority language. But because I speak Danish as well, they can safely speak Danish to each other and know that they're not excluding me.
0: Yeah, yeah you have a lovely section in in your book about uh, popular untruths we we persist in believing some blatant myths about language take us through one or two of those more amusing untruths well i think one of the big ones out there is the is the no word for x
1: cliche that you hear a lot that language x doesn't have a word for y and therefore the people who speak that language either don't care about y or they don't think about it or they're unable That's the strongest form of the claim, unable to think about it. Now, um, it, it doesn't pass this sort of BS test. If you think about it for just a second, you can think of lots of things that you don't have words for. And if you couldn't, we wouldn't be able to come up with new words. We wouldn't be able to invent things that didn't already exist. So, of course, you can think about things that you don't have a word for. Our hero, George Orwell, is responsible for a lot of the propagating of this story because he created a fictional world in which Newspeak eliminated words like freedom. And and as he put it in the description of it, made it impossible to think about freedom. Well, that's not true. You can think about all kinds of things that Mm -hmm. you don't have words for. And second, that account is usually wrong because it usually means that speakers of another language do uh, the thing that they supposedly don't have a word for. In a different way. Instead of having a one for one translation, they might use a short phrase, they might use a grammatical device or an ending. There are lots of ways to communicate things in language. And that's one of the things that makes it so fascinating. You don't typically say yes and no in some languages like Chinese and Brazilian Portuguese. You'll instead use a verb. So, you know, if I say, Do you speak Portuguese? Você we'll fala Portuguese. You say follow. And sometimes you'll hear claims like that in uh which means i speak um and you'll sometimes hear that said as oh, oh such and such language doesn't have a word for yes well no it just means that they use another strategy and those strategies differ quite a lot and they're the subject of a lot of interest but they don't tell us something profound like uh you know language x doesn't have a word for y therefore the people simply don't think about it that's mm. usually uh usually complete completely false Okay. Um,
0: And what about the popular one that, you know, in such and such a language, there are 97 words for snow or...
1: Ah, that's a classic, you know, that the that the um, peoples of the you know, sort of far north, of, you know, we used to call Eskimos a word that is now deprecated and refers to several different uh, speakers of several different groups of languages, Yupik and Inuit and so forth, that these languages have jillions of words for snow. Well, they do, but the thing is that once again, we're really talking about a different property and a strategy of their language, which is to use lots of bits to make very, very complex words uh, that have a very specific meaning. So in English, we might say the, the first snow of, uh, of, of the winter when everyone's still excited, well, that's a long, uh, noun phrase in English. It might be one word in these languages because of the way that they build words. So of course they do have lots of words for snow, but they don't have a huge number of basic roots. What they're using is different roots in their language mm-hmm. joined together in a great variety to make a large number of words.
0: Talk about the the, uh, conflict over Catalan and and Spanish that you experience uh, every day. It's an
1: extraordinarily emotive issue here in Spain. Spain, like all the European countries, has never been monolingual. It's sort of a platonic monolingual nation state in aspiration of sort of the Spanish centralizing nationalists, but it's never been the fact. That's never been the fact in, in England or in, in uh, uh, France or in any other of the so-called nation states of Europe and, and, Fran- and Spain is no exception. But um, we have some particularly strong and cohesive regional nationalisms with their languages, and those are in particular Catalan and Basque and to a lesser mm-hmm. extent Galician. And I say to a lesser extent because the Galicians um, are pretty happy with their place in Spain, but there are independence movements that are non-trivial in, in Catalan uh, and Basque situations. And those are very, t- very powerfully tied to the language. So in the Franco dictatorship from the 30s until the 70s, those languages were forbidden from any public use. Uh, you couldn't do signage. You couldn't do anything official in the languages. It didn't try to stop people from speaking them in their houses. But when you push a language to the margins like that, it does tend to have that effect. People speak it less and less. And, so those languages were really up against it when democracy came back in the 70s. And when it did come back, those territories were given lots of autonomy, self-government and including over-education. So um, they get to drop their own policies and they look a bit different in the Basque country in Catalonia, but in Catalonia in particular, schooling is now meant to be under the Catalan model in Catalan. You're taught in Catalan with the exception of Spanish language itself and other foreign languages. So the education system in Catalonia expects children to learn in Catalan and people who move from other parts of Spain often dislike this. They feel like their Spanish is not being tolerated, that they are the victims of discrimination. And in Catalonia, you'll hear like you are in Catalonia, you've chosen to move here Um, if you don't want to speak the language of this area, um, then maybe you're better off somewhere else. And so both sides very much see themselves as the victim of discrimination. And even the word racism is thrown in both directions. Those from elsewhere in Spain say the Catalans were exclusivist and have a sort of a closed and even racist idea of what it means to be a true Catalan and, Mm -hmm. and that Anyone who doesn't toe the line is in trouble. And of course, the Catalans feel like they were oppressed under Franco. And they were. And that their language is belittled is unimportant and and, uh, and so forth by Spanish, which is like English under no threat whatsoever globally. Uh, yes. Hundreds of millions of people speak Spanish. The number of Catalan speakers is in the sort of single digit, probably about eight or nine million, 10 million, maybe. Mm-hmm. So both sides have this sort of victim narrative. And it's very sad to see because um, there could be, I think, more constructive and flexible Spanish nationalism where uh, making it easier to be both a very proud Catalan and a very proud Spaniard mm-hmm. but right now the narratives are kind of non-overlapping for a lot of people mm-hmm. you have to lean one way or the other. There are plenty of people who do consider themselves proudly both but um, it's it, those people are pretty squeezed uh, by mm-hmm. the sort of maximalists on both sides and it's sad to see it's a great country full of warm and wonderful people and um, and so I hate to see I hate to see the, this conflict. The solution is multilingualism, and it's an easy one. Uh, Catalans can, can and do learn Spanish, and Spaniards can learn Catalan if they put their mind to it. It's really quite easy for a Spaniard.
0: What lessons for the United States in this debate in Spain? Well, it's a tricky comparator because we don't have
1: a sort of historical regional language in the same way. And I think if I say that, a lot of people will think of the fact that we took more or less conquered the Southwest from Mexico, and it was historically Spanish-speaking, and that's true. But it's been quite a long time, and you know, mid 19th century that that happened, and and um, there hasn't been a sort of revindication of Spanish kind of continually through that time, like there has been in the case of Catalina. So it's a bit tricky. America is not sort of multi multilingual and multi-ethnic in the same way. Spain was sort of built on a kind of semi-voluntary union of crowns. In Spain, you really had a kind of merger of equals in which you have the famous Catholic monarchs uh, Ferdinand and Isabella married each other and each brought their language into the union. Uh, Ferdinand was the King of Aragon, which included uh, the county of Barcelona and uh, Spanish, or the Catalan speaking territories. And of course, Uh, Isabella brought with her the Castilian language, which is what we call Spanish today. It was kind of a merger rather than a conquest in that sense. Right, right.
0: So linguists are famous for uh, avoiding prescriptivism and uh, famous for embracing everything. Make a case for prescriptivism for us. Well, as uh, the linguists would
1: agree, every language has is, is got rules. Linguistics is, is about discovering the rules of a language. So it's not the case that linguists don't believe in rules, but they don't believe in rules being imposed on the language that are actually not grounded in the use of speakers in a nutshell. And so prescriptivism is a way of helping, and um, in, in its best form, is a way of helping people who want to write in particular by the rules that are tacitly or overtly accepted by other good writers and readers. There are questions of how to, um, how to punctuate a sentence so that it meets the standard criteria for English punctuation. And how also to punctuate so that it's as clear as it can be. People want advice on things like that. And so, while I'm sympathetic with the linguists about getting rid of all the bad rules, I'm also an editor. I have been an editor many times in my career, and I've edited a lot of prose and I fixed a lot of things that I consider mistakes. I fixed things that are unclear. And I've also been one of those people that colleagues come to and ask questions. And um, I like answering those questions. They want advice. Mm -hmm. And so one argument for prescriptivism is people want guidance on how to write in such a way that their grammar and their mechanics don't distract or annoy uh, their readers. And there is advice to be given so long as that advice is is sensible. It's well-grounded in what people actually do so that the rules that are prescriptive are also descriptive and there's no conflict.
0: You're writing The Economist's New Style Guide this year. Uh, what's what's uh, What are some interesting things coming out of that? Do you have any specific um, examples of things that are coming into style acceptability and some things that are going out of style acceptability? One of the
1: things that is um, really coming back into acceptability, I should say, is the use of singular they. And what do I mean by singular they? Well, there's a couple of things. English famously lacks a good pronoun when the antecedent is something like someone or somebody. The, a traditional solution was to say things like somebody left his umbrella here. Well, there's long been a rejoinder to that, which is that's inaccurate as well as sexist. If you have mixed group leaves a table and then somebody's left an umbrella, well, you say somebody has left their umbrella here. Mm-hmm. Now the grumpy rejoinder to this is, well, they is plural and somebody is singular. Well, yes. Um, but since we lack a proper pronoun that goes with somebody, he or his umbrella is wrong on gender and they is wrong on number. And there's no obvious reason that it's better to be wrong on uh, gender than it is to be wrong on number. And besides the sort of somebody left their umbrella here solution has been around since the 14th century. So it's mm-hmm. not modern political correctness run amok. It's in fact, a very ancient solution to this problem, which is why almost everybody does it in speech. If you find an umbrella, you say somebody left their umbrella. Everybody does it. Everybody does it. And there's no reason not to bring it back into writing. An edition or so of the style guide ago, um, I pushed for successfully uh, with its previous editor to have us um, be allowed to say things like, "If someone got in his face, he got in their face," which we said in an obituary of uh, Roger Ailes, and, and, and there's no other way to state that sentence. You can't say, "If somebody got in his face, he got in." his face. That was uh, yeah, you could, Yeah, you laugh. It's, it's awful, right? You, you can see how unacceptable the traditional solution is. So this is a case for that singular day. And it's in the King James Bible. It's in Shakespeare. It's in Austin. It's all over the place. So it's it's as venerable as you get. It's in the Oxford English Dictionary. And other style guides are also adding it. I believe the Associated Press has, has uh, given it the green light as well as maybe Chicago Manual of Style yeah. as well
0: is this simply uh, an acceptance of what is already commonplace in speech is it this is it the divide between yeah. the written and the and the spoken
1: Yes. I mean, I think it was, it was common in both speech and writing for a very, very long time, again, centuries. Then in sort of in the, I think in the 1800s, you started to get the prohibition against it, say, and the recommendation that you use he or his instead, that kind of pushed it out of writing and it's making its way back in. It's always been in informal writing and it's always, always, always been in speech. So this is really just welcoming it back into uh, writing.
0: As we look forward to the rest of this century, uh, got any predictions about the way language and grammar is going to be moving? What can we look forward to?
1: That's a good question. Um, So while we're on the case of a singular they, um, you know, I I don't want to get into too much detail on this, but I think it's fair to say that there's a new usage of singular they, which is that people who consider themselves non-binary, neither male or female, uh, and use they as their pronoun, there are more and more such people. So we have a genuinely innovative use of they, which is something like, you'll say, Alex left their uh, umbrella here. Alex is a known individual, uh, but Alex doesn't use he or she. Alex uses they as their pronoun. And um, you're starting to see this in, um, in all kinds of writing. You're seeing news articles in the New York Times or The Economist using these pronouns. And I think they might have a good long run you know in this in this regard if it's not permanent um but it's very hard to say um the the issues around gender are so new and so fluid um it's very hard to say where is it going to be in a hundred years time those who haven't kind of figured this out will find themselves uh reckoning with it sooner or later Hmm.
0: you you write in your book about how english is is creeping into all kinds of things like higher education in non-english speaking countries Uh, what do we gain what do we lose
1: Well, we gain a a lingua franca in which um, everyone is reading and writing in the same language in particular. It's been argued that the COVID-19 vaccines wouldn't have been developed as quickly as they were if they hadn't been developed by researchers like an Anglo-Swedish company like AstraZeneca. Um, You have people around the world able to collaborate with a single language. And I think uh, there's no doubt that's a good thing. But English is marginalizing. It's pushing other languages to the edges. In countries that have enthusiastically braced English like uh, Netherlands and the Scandinavian countries, um, you're seeing less and less serious academic work, for example, being done in those languages. What you risk is that these languages just become limited in their scope. They are only used by people at home and in friendship groups. They're not in danger of dying, but they are in danger of losing their range across uh, the sciences and and all the academic disciplines. And English is just, its growth is going to continue. You said sneaking in, but it's no longer sneaking in. It's really rushing in. Other languages are increasingly taking a backseat. French, one of the world's killer dominant languages for a very, very, very long time is being increasingly pushed into margins. Um, so every other language, um, German, you know, and on down is, is seeing even less and less a spotlight, especially in in, in sort of serious writing intended for an international audience. There is a loss there, you know, particularly for speakers of those languages who will have to do any serious work in a language that isn't isn't their home language, but it may be the inevitable cost of a lingua franca.
0: Is it possible to imagine a globe where a single language prevails?
1: it depends on what you mean by prevails. I I would say a single language already does prevail. Uh, But um, in, in a hundred years it's often predicted around half the world's languages will disappear. Some people are more pessimistic than that. There's not just English, but the big killer languages are like Portuguese, French, Spanish, and in, uh, in places like Southeast Asia, Bahasa Indonesia um, against Indonesian languages or Russian against small languages in parts of Russia. Um, so English isn't the only killer language. The, the model here is that in 100 years, you have um, the big macro languages have grown and lots of tiny languages you and I have never heard of um, have just ceased to be mm-hmm. uh, with English premier among them. But, but you'd, you'll still have Spanish and French and Russian and, uh, uh, and some of those languages. But uh, the small fry are the first to go
0: been beautiful talking to you today, Lane. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Paul. I've enjoyed it very much.
0: And thanks to you for joining me, Paul Meyer, and my guest, Lane Green. To learn more about him, please see the webpage on paulmeyer.com devoted to this podcast. Don't forget to follow Paul Meyer Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter at Dialect Paul. My guest next month is Denise Woods, one of the most successful voice and dialect coaches working today. Her clients include Idris Elba, Will Smith, Ken Watanabe, Don Cheadle, and Audra MacDonald. She's the author of The Power of Voice, and a faculty member at the Juilliard School and the California Institute of the Arts. Next time on In a Manner of Speaking.